All right. Well, I hope you're ready to have your mind blown. We have author, podcaster, conspiracy theorist Jay Dyer on the show, and we're going to do a lot of deep dives in this episode. He has a new book out right now. We're going to talk about that, plus what's going on with Epstein and Maxwell, The Great Reset, why Bill Gates is buying up a bunch of farmland, AI and transhumanism, media manipulation, MKUltra, serial killers, deep underground military bases, and so much more. So before we get to it, if you could, real quick, please subscribe to my show and hit the bell on YouTube so you won't miss any notifications when I post new videos. Thank you so much. Now enjoy my interview with Jay Dyer. Welcome to the show. I just read your latest book. Uh, it's it's a little above my head. I'll be honest. It's you're you go into some deep stuff here, and uh, a lot of I feel like I need to reread it like maybe two or three times to really understand it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it would uh, translate to you know kind of uh, an audience new to philosophy or not. Um, so maybe on one level it'll it'll pique people's interest. They'll want to <laughs> want to dig deeper. But yeah, I mean, I'm happy to try to explain anything I can. Uh, I've actually I've actually been rereading it because some of these essays I wrote, you know, back in my 20s. So hmm. I was a little fuzzy on some of it, but uh, I think I remember most of it. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about like uh, metaphysics. You say that's the reality itself, uh, the study of w the totality of what is like, I don't explain that to me. <laughs> So basically, in the history of philosophy, you have you have three branches. And so it's broken down typically into three branches. Um the first is uh, the easiest one to get a hold of, which is <clears throat> just ethics. Ethics is just what's right and wrong, what motivates uh, you know our decisions to choose this over that, what makes something good or bad. And then the next domain is usually it's usually divided into epistemology, which is a, the branch of knowledge or knowing. So how do we know what we know? What does it mean to have knowledge as opposed to opinion? Uh, you know, what constitute what constitutes knowledge, strictly speaking, as, a, as opposed to just a belief? Can we justify our beliefs, give a good reason for them? In other words, it's one thing to say, well, you know, I believe that it'll rain tomorrow. I believe that, you know, the sky is blue, so forth and so on. Um, but let's say that I said, I believe it's going to rain tomorrow because I rolled the dice and I got a five. And when I roll the dice and get a five, that means it's going to rain tomorrow. Well, that's not a good reason to believe that it's going to rain tomorrow. So even if it did rain tomorrow and I was right, I didn't have a good reason to believe that it would rain tomorrow. So we want to have not just reasons for our beliefs, but good reasons for our beliefs. And usually those are the kinds of questions that, that are being asked on the domain of epistemology. The third domain um, is connected to the first two, but... Uh, it's a little more abstract, a little more um, difficult for a lot of people, I think, to grasp. And that's called metaphysics. So it's uh, metaphysics, meaning beyond or above the physical. So what is it that exists? What are the types of things that exist? Is everything just matter? Is everything just um, energy in motion or something like that? Those are metaphysical questions. And so while phys physics might be concerned with the scientific discipline of matter and motion and what constitutes physical objects and you know how do they uh change position and whatnot metaphysics is more of a um, ancient and medieval uh, idea dealing with what are the different types of things that exist beyond just the physical realm what are uh what are numbers what are thoughts do they have any kind of existence 
Um, are they all fake? Are they all real? Maybe some philosophers have said maybe fundamental reality is itself thought. And so this would be philosophers like Plato, right? So um, those, those are the kinds of questions that metaphysics is asking. Um, likewise, that first domain that I mentioned, ethics, uh, let's say we think, for example, that um, giving to the poor is good. So if I donate money to the poor, that I think that's a good thing. Well, that can immediately relate to metaphysics because the next kind of higher level question we could ask is, okay, but what is the good, right? If you say the giving to charity is good, um, I can just raise that question up the ante and say, okay, well, you tell me what good is. And those are the questions of metaphysics, good, um, even the beautiful uh, in the history of philosophy. So art and aesthetics oftentimes falls under metaphysics because <clears throat> if we say that let's say a piece of art or a, a musical composition is really good or beautiful as opposed to something that's crappy and it displays no talent. Well, what is it that makes that one good, aesthetically pleasing as opposed to the, you know, the one that's bad. And so we're asking questions like, well, then what is the beautiful? And those are questions that, you know, Plato brings up in the Fiedo and um, some of his other dialogues where those kinds of metaphysical questions are asked. So that's what I would say metaphysics is. Okay. Yeah. So some of that stuff's obviously subjective. Um, but one of the things you get into a little bit too, is the materialism versus the ultimate reality. And, uh, I'm, I'm kind of more learning more about this. My, my dad, he actually wrote a book called ultimate reality. And I had on, uh, are you familiar with Dr. Hoffman's work at all? Uh, there's a lot of Dr. Hoffman, Dr. What, what Dr. Hoffman, Dr. Donald Hoffman. He's a, mm -hmm. um, so he's like a cognitive psychologist and like, and you talk about the quantum physics, uh, because I think the thing was the scientific world was always saying, uh, you know, that it was more materialistic view. And now the science is showing that there may be some other reality and right. they're kind of diagnosing it. And Hoffman's uh, stuff is all about kind of like, basically he describes it as not this, not that we're actually living in the matrix, but that's kind of a good analogy for, for a description of the world that we see is not the real world. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like you're wearing a virtual headset. Yeah, those would be parallel to uh, Plato. So Plato had a lot of uh, similarities to modern simulation theory or matrix theory, or these, these kinds of views. Um, I think there's some insights in that, but I, I'm not a full-on Platonist or like a full-on uh, you know, matrix kind of guy. Those would be more akin to like Gnosticism. So the Gnostic worldview would be, again, very close to those ideas. And the idea there is, like you said, um, you know, reality can't just be purely physical hard matter it's got to be more than that and so some of the essays that i put in there were trying to demonstrate that you can actually show this to be the case with things like numbers or higher dimensions as you mentioned um and so i think that yes uh it's kind of the pendulum kind of swings in history like it so for a long time in the ancient medieval world you had a pendulum that swung towards um, the transcendent towards Plato's ideas and these kinds of things. And then after Aristotle, after the enlightenment, the pendulum swung over towards what you're calling, you know, materialism and modern uh, scientism. And so it's kind of a, a radical extreme. And then now it's pen, like you said, the pendulum is swinging back the other way with things like simulation theory and higher dimensions. And a lot of the mathematicians like Max Tegmark and others who are looking at reality and saying, Hey, it's actually, seems like math is the fundamental, uh, you know, programming language of reality. And so that's, a, again, a swing back in the other direction. In, in my view, reality is uh, something in the middle where we have a mix of both the physical material world and other dimensions. And so it's a both and in my view. And um, 
the one thing I would say, not not to be contentious, but you're right that in in one domain of the, the domain of aesthetics, there is an element of the subjective. So we do have a an area where certain musical styles, artistic styles will appeal to one person and not to another. But I actually think you can make a good case, too, that there's also uh, some objectivity in the arts as well. And that's what allows us to avoid um, what sometimes is called romanticism or existentialism in the arts, the idea that it's all purely emotive. Like it's uh, the art is the artwork is good only because of how it makes me feel. Um, there might again be that subjective element, but you can also make a good argument that no, actually, as a lot of medieval uh, art theorists uh, argued, you actually need some objective components like beauty, symmetry, harmony, uh, patterns, or organization for the artwork to count even as artwork. So I think there's a case to be made for that. And even some modern um, atheistic philosophers like Ayn Rand, have, she wrote a pretty good book on arts and art theory, where she even argued that we have to have some kind of uh, objective standards in the arts to even have the art. So uh, just being a little more nuanced that I agree with you, there is a subjective component, but there's also an objective reality to these things too. So why do you think, uh, I mean, cause I feel like most of the best art is made by people who are fucked up. Like uh, I think one of my favorite artists is Salvador Dali. That guy seemed like he was a little nutty. And then what Van Gogh cut his ear off. I mean, a lot of this arts, the artistic stuff is, is made by people who are messed up, but you're saying that it's like, well, again, I mean, I guess that kind of depends on the period where we pick. I mean, you could pick a lot of ancient, um, you know, sculptures. You could pick a lot of uh, Renaissance art that, uh, I mean, I don't know the lives of everybody in, in you know, like Bernini or any, all of the all of the uh, Renaissance sculptors, whether they were, you know, screwed up. I guess they could have been. Um, there is perhaps to, you know, people who have um i think all people to a degree are screwed up so i don't know that <laughs> that's true yeah i don't know that there's something particularly about the arts per se that, that i think that's again a kind of a romanticist era notion that to be an artist requires that you be effed up and uh you know have uh problems or whatever um but there could be something to that uh I, i'm not sure how i feel about that i'm not trying to deny the role of emotions in the arts. certainly they play a, a heavy role but i mean it's also kind of vague in terms of how narrow we it's, it's unclear in terms of how narrow we want to specify the arts. For example, I mean, you could argue Plato's dialogues are a form of art, but the odd, there's an oddity to it where he felt like the arts should be heavily regulated. So, you know, here's somebody who doesn't want, uh, like he has a whole dialogue called Ion, where he's arguing that you can't let the artists run the society because they're driven by their passions and the society will collapse because they're not governed by reason. So, you know, it, it's, it, that's a difficult question to ask. I mean, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked it, but, but that's a difficult one. Yeah. Well, so then uh, you move on to, uh, we talked about scientism um, and you, you bring up some interesting points about the problems with science. And I feel like that's something that's interesting to talk about today because I, I think a lot of people just kind of accept, Oh, this is science. We should all just accept it. But isn't that like kind of, back in the day that they, everyone accepted that the earth was flat. And so everyone just accepted that. And if you thought the world was round, you were nuts. And uh, you bring up some interesting things that I, I had to Google this because I was like, wait, is this, is this real? You say carbon dating. There's issues with this. And I Googled it and you're right. There's a lot of issues. If it's more than they said 40,000 years old, it's very hard because the amount of carbon left is, is very minuscule. 
Yeah, those kinds of measurements are based on certain presuppositions baked into the worldview or the paradigm of most of the people who do the measurements. So, um, you know, it's it's going to tell us what we assume from the outset, in other words. And, and a lot of science works this way, where they assume things that are in the domain of philosophy that um, most scientists just don't question or that they're not familiar with because when you go to edu- when you go to higher education it's very compartmentalized so people who study physics or study um, geology they you know they don't do anything in philosophy typically I mean very every now and then you'll have a professor like a uh, there's a guy I really like dr. David Bradshaw he um, has a degree in ancient philosophy and in physics. So he's a unique case, but like wow. that's 0.01%, like hardly anybody has, yeah. you know, two PhDs in, in seemingly disparate fields. And so on the one hand, there's, a, there's the element of uh, compartmentalization where a lot of academics don't even know what basic logical fallacies are, these kinds of things. So they, they don't really know that when they're doing what they think is pure quote, hard science, they're really in the domains of metaphysics. They're in the domains of of philosophy, which they think isn't really necessary. A lot of pop science, especially, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson famously said a few years ago that philosophy is pretty much worthless. It's not needed anymore. And I think that that's because that he knows that he can't really answer the kinds of questions that philosophy is, is posing. And he doesn't realize that there's no such thing as quote, pure science. There's no such thing as a, a neutral, uh, presuppositionless paradigm by which to interpret the world. We all come to the world to, to, to interpreting the world with our own uh, presuppositions, assumptions, a kind of baked in paradigm by which we read the world. I don't think that's a problem. I think we're just, you know, humans are just constituted that way such that they read the world in that way. And so that was, those, are, again, the questions of philosophy and science assumes that it's neutral. It assumes that it doesn't have these kinds of presuppositions and again, doesn't realize that it's that it's making these kinds of judgments. So, for example, science, I believe it's a tool. It's a tool for mastering and understanding the natural world, but it can't tell you values. It doesn't it can't give you value judgments. Uh, famous Enlightenment atheist David Hume even said being more consistent than most of his skeptical uh, scientism buddies that you can't get an ought from an is. In other words, the, describing the features of the way things are, which is a metaphysical domain, by the way, doesn't tell you whether that's good or bad, whether it ought to be that way or ought not to be that way, right? So um, one, of the, one of the easy ways to see the flaws of modern scientism is that scientism can't tell you good or bad. It can't tell you what are called value judgments because that's the domain of ethics and metaphysics. And so just reading or interpreting the data doesn't tell you whether that's the data you ought to have or ought not to have. But most people who have the scientism um, worldview or presupposition, like they tend to think that they're on a moral high horse. They have a moral high ground. They're prepared to tell, you know, all of the superstitious religious people or whatever uh, who don't agree with them how they should or should not live, what does and doesn't exist and so forth, which, again, um, the limitations of the scientific method can't even do that. So that's kind of what I try to point out. Yeah, I know. It's just the biases. Like you say, much of the scientific literature may be untrue. And you say about because half of the studies that are done are are sponsored by industries. So they're going to sponsor a study that's going to favor whatever it is, their product that they're pushing. And even, I mean, this was fascinating. The editor of the New England Journal of Medicine for two decades uh, I think it was a, was it a she or he, I think it was a, she said she doesn't trust all the research that's published. And that's the new England journal of medicine. I mean, that's a pretty telling statement. 
Yeah, I just uh, had the great opportunity to be on a podcast yesterday with James Lindsay, and I didn't recognize right away. We had to do a little bit of the podcast before I realized, oh, he's that guy. <laughs> but he's the guy who uh, Joe Rogan had on a couple of years ago, who with his his buddy, they had published a whole bunch of like fake peer review studies as a test to see if you could get fake peer review studies published. And I think they got oh, almost yeah. all of them. Yeah. So I was on that podcast with that guy and we were talking. I was like, oh, you're that dude. I was like, man, that's awesome that you did that. I said, you're a hero of mine for doing that. Because um, I, if I recall, I think he's the guy that got that goofy joke study published about how dog parks were racist because they <laughs> yes. didn't have like gay dog sections. Yeah. Something yeah. Like- <laughs> so that's another example of that. There Crazy. used to be a great website too that would that would track uh, peer review fraud. I can't remember if it still exists, mm. but you can look it up. There's like a, a website that just tracks, you know, um, science fraud publications. And so the other reason I kind of knew about this was not because my mom was dealing with science fraud, but my not my mom was an editor for many years for um, the biggest uh, science journal publisher, Hardcore Brace, and she did that for about 15 years. And um, what I got from her doing that was that there's a clear um, little known relationship between billion dollar mega corporations, publishing corporations and peer reviewed science. And most people don't even know that, but I mean, yeah, it, it, I mean, do we honestly think that billion dollar mega corporations tied into, you know, all the other mega corporations, big pharma, that they don't have an influence in the science that's published. I mean, has not the last couple of years shown that I think to people who have an open mind. Well, right. Cause where's the money from the, that are the donations for these universities who's donating that money. Yeah. One thing I learned too, when I was at university was that there's an intimate relationship too, between um, the university system and the textbooks uh, and not just the, uh, uh, the uh, university boards who decide what textbooks and whatnot, but the big corporations have a say in what the university textbooks say. So again, there's this incestuous relationship between what's supposed to be a you know public institution of a university and the private corporate interests that print the textbooks and the boards who decide what textbooks will be used. And so, yeah, you better believe that uh, they have a say so in you know what college students learn in terms of their biology texts their nutrition texts, which are going to be influenced by big pharma as well. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a giant, uh, it's a giant scam in my view. Yeah. Well, this book, you mentioned this book in chapter seven, uh, Karl Popper's the open society and its enemies. And it's something about how fighting against an ideology or philosophy that has a common goal value or meaning. And you said that George Soros, which I have a book on him and I had not read it yet, but, uh, he regards this book, the open society one as his personal Bible, so what, what does that mean exactly? So we should not, because it seems like there's also this thing about the, the world government and everything, everything should be the same, but then we should also not have a common goal. Well, the common goal is to let the elites decide what the common goal is and you just do what they tell you to. And so uh, <laughs> Popper is part of the, what's called the Vienna Circle, and they were the logical positivists uh, of the 20th century, sort of the radical empiricists. Um, people like Bertrand Russell was involved in these groups. Um, and you know, they had a very, uh, fairly open idea that they wanted to promote world government. Um, uh, some of these philosophers were tied into Quigley's, uh, book, uh, Anglo-American establishment and the Royal society elites. So there was a close connection between the Royal society and the Vienna circle. 
uh, empiricists slash positivists. And Popper is one of those key figures who, um, you know, really promotes this idea of open liberal, quote unquote, democracy, which is really just open free markets. Uh, that that's why Soros is a big fan of that, right? Because he he likes to sort of uh, manipulate markets in these different countries that, for example, uh, he recently was talking about the former Soviet bloc. Uh, Soros was instrumental in uh, being allied with the CIA back in the 80s and 90s under Reagan to open up those Soviet bloc countries to free market capitalism, not because of uh, any sincere interests to free these people up, but it was a scam to once the Soviet economy had collapsed, they would come in and buy all this stuff up. Then they opened it up to so-called Western liberalism and color revolutions. And so that's what we've been seeing for the last several decades. Um, F. William Ingdahl has a great book uh, on the color revolutions and how, that, how all that works called Full Spectrum Dominance. And he covers uh, Karl Popper and uh, Popper's philosophy of open society and then um, you know, how that relates to Soros as being kind of allied with the CIA for for these uh, Cold War operations, which open it up to economic liberalism. Yeah. So you said Ango elites want to control. This is weird. They want to control the natural resources for immortality. How, how can you be immortality by controlling the resources? Uh, I don't remember that exact. I'm not saying that it's wrong, but uh, if I recall, <laughs> I was implying that the goal of the Anglo-American establishment would be to eventually obtain immortality through technology. So in order to um, corner the markets in the domain of natural resources, natural resources are what are necessary to uh, not just control the world, but there's an end goal. It's not just control. It's actually also the idea that technology can eventually produce, you know, a means of immortality. And so that's, that's the whole transhumanist movement, but transhumanism requires, you know, the big tech elite, for example, um, um, Bill Joy, the sun microsystems guy, he wrote a famous essay in wired magazine called why the future doesn't need us. Um, I had, a, I did a whole episode of Alex's show the other day, or actually a few weeks ago on that essay. And I, I recommend reading that essay. It's not that long, but you'll notice if you read Bill Joy's essay, he's a guy that created Sun Microsystems, a big uh, you know, early tech billionaire guy. And he was talking about the meetings that's in Silicon Valley that he had with people like Ray Kurzweil, the famous uh, transhumanist, and how they were discussing immortality. And, and he, in that essay, talks about how it would be that the, the 20th century's attempt to control the natural resources is ultimately for the purpose of transhumanism. So that's that's the essay I would say to read if you want the the lowdown on, on why that is the case. Yeah, I mean, because they're already working the Neuralink stuff. And I had a guy on the show, uh, Dr. Morin Surf, and he's he's talking about how you're going to put this chip in the in your brain and it's going to it's going to give you more power to like manipulate the stock markets and things like that. And he said it's kind of he compared it to like breast implants. He's like, oh, well. Uh, people are going to see that other people have this upgrade and then you're going to want it too. Yeah. But I mean, the, the odd part about that is that if you look at Ray Kurzweil's book, uh, Singularity, he has a chapter where he talks about VR, virtual reality, and what would later be called metaverse. Uh, Cause I think he wrote that book in 2005 or six, but he talks about this too, that eventually it won't need to be uh, a chip implanted. It'll be what he, what he says is, is an advanced form of nanotech, which will just be in your body. And, he says it can come between you and your perception of the external world. And he says that it will not only be a thing where you uh, link in and experience cool things, but he says that a centralized authority could also control you. So it's a two-way thing here, right? It's like 
the Palantir stone in Lord of the Rings, right? Where Pippin looks into it and sees Sauron, but Sor- Sauron can also see back at him. And so it's a two-way thing that Kurzweil talks about and, and even admits that, yeah, you might be able to have certain advantages if this if the technology works, but there's a it's a two-way thing. It's a back door where they can also put things into your head. Do you think it's going to be a voluntary thing that people are going to want to sign up for this? Or do you think some people will be skeptical? I think eventually they'll promote it as something hip, trendy, uh, and voluntary, and then see how that goes. And then eventually and gradually try to uh, make it eventually mandatory. In fact, one of the uh, one of the white papers that I covered this year was the UK Ministry of Defense white paper on uh, transhumanism and brain chips. And that's what they say. They say eventually they'll just alter through social engineering people's attitudes towards these things to make it uh, a government mandate. Scary shit. Well, so what is, you mentioned um, in chapter 10, quantum mechanics, and you, and you mentioned CERN. You don't really <laughs> you don't go into it a lot, but uh, explain what are your thoughts on that? What that is? I don't really know a lot about it. I just heard about it about a month ago because I think they just recently turned it back on. It's this big machine that mm-hmm. they're trying to find the God particle. I, I don't even know if I understand. Do you understand that stuff? You know, I don't have a hard opinion on CERN. I, I know like what the public what they say about what it is publicly that it's, you know, this thing that is just studying, um, you know, minuscule level physics. Um, and I just kind of per- purposed some of the ph- uh, physicists who got into philosophy, like Wolfgang Pauli, um, Werner Heisenberg and people. Th- so, so they're speculative physicists who, you know, were involved in, I don't know if they're involved directly in CERN, but their research is the kind of stuff that CERN does where they're looking at, you know, tiny, tiny particles to see, what's down there uh in those lower dimensions and you know they the what i found most relevant was that they talk about it like it's structured that it has patterns and forms and that would speak to the kind of world that plato talked about in the timaeus and some of his other uh dialogues which is where we have these ideas of platonic solids that fundamental reality is uh, geometrically structured and to me that suggests design and you know a lot of pre you know people prior to the 20th century couldn't see reality at that level um so they wouldn't have had an insight into uh reality being that highly structured and so that shows that it's not just pure chaos there's a a fundamental design there to reality so that's the reason that i was including that Um, there's a lot of speculations as to what cern really does uh, anything from trying to open up portals, dimensions. I mean, it could be any of those things. Um, I, I've sometimes I speculate that these kinds of things might also be for uh, other reasons like security surveillance purposes. It could be something like that. And the particle physics is a cover for it. Uh, but it, yeah, it could be any of those things. So I just kind of looked at it from the vantage point of what they claim about um, minuscule particles, uh, you know, being structured. Mm, it is fascinating. I hope something happens. I hope something comes out of that. Um, you mentioned too, uh, Darwin theory. It links. To, explain this, the link with Freemasons. How did that come? So about? Darwin's. Uh, I'm going for Mary. Either dad or granddad. Uh, the, the Collins brothers have a really good book where they go into a lot of depth with this. Uh, in fact, their new book is called "Invoking the Beyond." Uh, they're buddies of mine, and and they wrote a really long book on not just the history of Darwin, but its relationship to the British empire, social engineering. And it was either Darwin's 
dad or granddad was a really prominent Freemason. And he wrote these poems about Hindu philosophy and Hindu thought, which appear to have influenced uh, Darwin himself in terms of formulating his view, which again, is not really a scientific view because it goes far beyond the limitations of what the scientific method can actually prove or show. So it's packed with all these uh, metaphysical assumptions about what occurred millions of years ago, um, about the transmutation of species. And the irony is that, you know, Darwin's view is not new. It wasn't even novel in his day. People before him had posited this kind of a view. Even ancient Greek philosophers had a version of evolutionary theory. And even prior to them, ancient Hindu thought uh, is really the source of, of Darwinian evolutionary theory. Yeah. Well, and he, he even says there's some the problems with his theory, one of them, which being we've can, we've never been able to uh, recreate that in a lab setting because they say like this bolt of lightning struck the I, I just love this term primordial goo. Yeah, and right. that's created the amoebas and the fish yeah. and then everything. But we've never been able to recreate that. So, yeah. And it's built on a whole bunch of other assumptions, too, that, for example, um, you know, one species or one type of of creature can start to print the unique code of some other creature. So that's what's required for it to be the case to have the transmutation of species. And, you know, DNA says that that's not possible. You'll never have a bear printing whale code or a whale printing frog code. They always are going to print the same code that exists. Even the mutations are only the mutations that would be possible uh, in a minor variation within that species, right? So you might get a frog with, you know, 10 fingers or something that's a mutation, but that's that's never going to get you to another uh, species. And that's why they always just say, oh, well, but if there was zillions of years, it would happen. But again, that's never empirically observed. This is an empirical, this is supposed to be an empirical observe, observed science. And not only can the principles of, uh, you know, transmutation of species and whatnot not be empirically observed, uh, most of these people are empiricists in terms of their philosophy, and you can't even prove empiricism because how can you prove through empirical sense data that all knowledge comes through empirical sense data? You can't. Yeah. It's an impossible proposition to prove. Yeah. And another example you, you give in your book that was really interesting about when you talk about like the Grand Canyon, how people assume that it took millions of years. Mm -hmm. But then you give these examples of things that. Uh, was it in the Bighorn Mountains, a, a gash or something near in Wyoming? Took, took yeah, I mean, it's not as big as the Grand Canyon, yeah, yeah. but there was one that opened up within a day. Uh, yeah, that's pretty sizable. Exactly. And a fly ranch geyser in Nevada, it, it sprung up over a few decades from from people, humans drilling. We, we caused that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So so people go out and party at this area. And there's a giant geyser there that, um, that drilling, as you said, caused. And I think it was in about, about 40 years, they had a giant uh calcite deposit and um the, you know the typical narrative explanation for those kinds of things is, oh that takes you know 11 million years for that to form or whatever which is just not true i mean people there's houses from the 1800s that have in their basements you know stalactites and stalagmites that have formed you know within 100 years that again are supposed to take millions of years yeah and then you have a chapter about numbers this is always interesting to me because you know they say seven is associated with perfect 666 the devil like why why is that exactly i mean you kind of explain it but i'm still confused well uh so the, the there's two different things here is one is number theory which is the metaphysical question of what are numbers mm -hmm. and then there's a separate question of number symbolism or numerology and so uh 
the reason, for example, seven is relevant is that the the world seems to be structured on a seven day week. And the best explanation that I have for that is that the Bible <laughs> explains that in the book of Genesis, we have God creating the world and the seventh day being the Sabbath. And so there's a fundamental seven day structure to the week, which is just primordial and goes back to the ancient world. And so that's probably the origin of seven being significant, um, marking the days off in that way. And, and the origin of ancient calendars, which I don't actually think anybody really knows the total, you know, the further we go back in history, you know, 6,000 years or whatever, 5,000 years, the further we go back, the, the more speculation is involved on ancient cultures and how they did what they did. So there's a lot, there's more, far more that we don't know than what we do know. So um, I was mainly just pulling from uh, biblical symbology in terms of the Old Testament and how the, what the significance of seven is, the significance of um, a, a triplicity of sixes. Uh, you know, a six, six, six would be kind of an inverted version of the Trinity. It would be a, a triad that's not perfect, that's imperfect. And so it would be lacking that the, the, the perfection of the number seven or the completion of a week. Um, it's also in scripture, the number of a man uh, or humanity. Uh, uh, and so, you know, there's m- multiple reasons why six would be referred to man. And of course, six, six, six is the number of talents of gold that Solomon would bring in as a Sol- as Solomon sort of in, in his later years apostatizes from God and becomes this sort of type or, or uh, antichrist type of figure. And that's why I think, in the apocalypse, John uses six six six, which is also um, coded terminology for Nero, in my view. So I think John was talking about Nero, the the emperor at that time, and how he, as a persecutor of early Christianity, was seen as this antichrist figure. So those are some of the reasons why seven and six and six 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 are uh, seen that way in scripture. Yeah, and then number the- theory is a different thing, though, where we're talking about like in that early, like we were talking about at the beginning with metaphysics, like. Well, you know, we, we all know what, a, what the number two, three, four, what those are, but what is a number? Where is a number? What kind of existence do, do numbers have? Are they just in our heads? Do they exist in some realm? Uh, are they just words we make up? Um, are they social constructs, right? Those are the kinds of questions that metaphysics asks about numbers and number theory. Yeah, that's, it's hard to come up with an answer for that. It's, it's weird, too. The computer programs are just a series of numbers, uh, zeros and ones. Right. And there's a chapter on that as well, because, I mean, I'm just trying to use computers as an analogy for how, you know, we look at computers and we see them as uh, machines that are clearly designed and structured. And so by the same logic, we should look at the world as designed and structured. I mean, again, I, I don't believe in simulation theory, but one thing that the simulation theory people have correct is that they see that analogy that I'm making. They see that point that, well, hey, wait a minute, reality is highly structured kind of like computer programs for playing a video game or structure. And so basically this is just the return of the notion of telos or design, right? Something that uh, enlightenment atheists threw away. They said, Oh, there's no design. Look at the mutations in the world. There's no design, but now we can see uh, even, you know, fundamental, fundamentally smaller levels of reality such that they are designed, which brings the notion of telos or design back into the world. Oh yeah. Fascinating stuff. Like I said, I need to read it again because it's like so deep, but yeah, it makes you think too. You gotta, you gotta take it slow. I think I read it a little too fast, but it's a lot of good stuff in there. And, uh, well, I appreciate yeah, you reading it. 
Yeah, no, it's great. Hopefully people got, I need to read, I think I've read your first book and this one, uh, they have, you have another ho- uh, Hollywood esoteric though. The second one, I haven't read that one yet either. So yeah, that, um, that one I think was better written the sequel. I mean, you know, the first one was just kind of my freshman book outing. And, uh, then I think the part two, uh, I was a, a better writer by the time that I wrote a lot of those. So, um, it, it's, it didn't sell as many copies as the first one, but it's actually a better written book, but okay. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, you have so many conspiracy theories. We got to talk about that. I think last time you were on, we didn't talk about, I didn't even ask you about Alex Jones because you guessed for him on uh, on his show on InfoWars. Have you seen his latest video where he's like, he's like they, the thing about the threatening to cut his finger off? And have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was, that was really funny. Yeah, <laughs> it cracked me said, up. He said, I'll cut my penis off. I'll cut it off right now. <laughs> yeah, he, he, I think he knows how to uh, do these really uh sensational you know sort of satire pieces and he knows the media will pick it up as if he was being serious is that yeah, i okay, mean so I, he's not really going to cut his finger off <laughs> right 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 i know but they picked it up so yeah and they were like he's insane he's going to cut his finger off how did you get hooked up did he like seek you out or do you do you actually like sit and hang out with him sometimes or is it just a thing where like the producer picked you out and you fill in for him when he's not there well i Alex had been aware of my stuff for a long time because I had called in to Alex, uh, back in 2006, five or six. And, um, he liked what I was talking about. Cause I'd, I'd read a bunch of global elite stuff even back then. And so he was like, Hey, call back, call back Monday. I want to have you back. And so I called back Monday and then, and I was, a many guests, I guess you could say for about 30 or 45 minutes. And then I, I wrote, uh, back then, probably five or six uh, articles for Infowars back in the day, 2005 or six. And then um, nothing much ever came of that. I did some satire videos and impressions that they put up back in the day. And then uh, just, I guess there's the channel grew and um, his producer is a big fan of the stuff that I do. A lot of people that, that are at his operation, like my material. And so um, I had actually missed the email. She sent me an email and it went into my spam box uh, and she was like, Hey, do you want to, you know, come on the show and, and be a guest? And that was two years ago. And so I dug that email, uh, magically out of the, <laughs> none of this would have ever happened if I hadn't checked the, the spam box. But so I was like, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love to come on. And, uh, you know, he was impressed with the interview that we did. And so that led to sort of hosting, uh, about once a week, the fourth hour. Uh, and then, yeah. So I've been in studio. We've been in, hung out in um, some of the protests and whatnot uh, a couple of times. So, yeah, I've spent a few days with Alex, which he's he's just a, the same in person as he is on air. So he's always just super energized and, uh, you know, raring to go. Um, but yeah, so that 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 opened a lot of doors, too. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoy hosting because it kind of gives me the ability to speak to, you know, really big audience. Um, yeah. And I. I I usually take the the lecture series material for for the global elite books, which now I think we've done about fifty or sixty top writings of the elite. I usually just take one of those and put that into that fourth hour. Yeah, no, it's great stuff. Why? Well, if I I would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask you about the biggest thing right now. I mean, I think is the Justine Maxwell and Epstein Island. I heard you talk a little bit about this. I didn't know. Because I'm watching the the show about uh, Maxwell on HBO or whatever, but I don't know if I knew that you said her dad was connected to the KGB and the, and was a a Cold War spy. Or tell me more about yeah, that. Yeah, he's a master spy. Robert Maxwell was the uh, Epstein of 
the 60s, the, the 50s and 60s, the Cold War. And he was a British media baron. Um, and uh, I just actually just finished a book on that because I didn't know a whole lot about the whole background of I did a uh, interview with a good buddy of mine who's a Russia analyst, Mark Hackard, um, and he translated a uh, essay that a KGB colonel wrote back in the Cold War about Maxwell. And that's her dad. So that that's how she learned the art of all of this blackmail and, and sexual entrapment stuff was from him. And he was doing all these same operations back in the uh I guess the sixties and seventies, but uh, yeah, he ended up having a sort of mysterious death where he, you know, started going, he started going against some of his masters and that, that a lot of people think that ended up with him um, meeting his death on a boat in the ocean somewhere. You think it uh, so, might've been Israeli intelligence. Yeah. Okay. Well, that might've also been who got rid of him because he, he kind of tried to turn on them. So, yeah. So, I mean, I don't understand how this list, uh, everyone's talking about the list that Maxwell, should have some, or I feel like more than one person would know who was at these parties and things. Why is that not being, how is that? I mean, and that's, I don't even think that's a conspiracy theory. It's just, how is this not, this list not being published? It's very bizarre. Well, probably, uh, you know, people are afraid of publishing it because, you know, there could be serious consequences for that. So, you know, I don't know what's on that list. Uh, I don't know any more than anybody else, but um, I did, did read i know more about her dad and, and his history than than her or speculations about her and, and that operation but i think we can clearly see that these kinds of operations are pretty uh standard i mean i'm not trying to be downplay it because it's, it's pretty crazy stuff but like her dad was doing the same stuff in the cold war period um the franklin scandal covers a similar type of operation in the 80s there's um, you know, Savile Elmhouse uh, in the UK, which is doing the exact same stuff, blackmailing people, uh, high profile politicians in the UK, uh, Elm Guesthouse, it's called. So, you know, th- this this is a more prevalent thing than we than we previously knew about. But of course, all the conspiracy theorists knew about it and talked about it. <laughs> and if you remember uh, the DC madam, Deborah Jean Palfrey, she was supposedly uh, suicided. She was talking about the same kinds of operations. Um, my publisher has a book, uh, what is that guy's name? There's a, uh, a guy that published a book, uh, it may be called confessions of a DC madam. I'm getting, maybe Mm. getting it mixed up with the other one, but it's the, it's the same thing, but with gay stuff. So there's another guy, Henry Vincent, I think is his name. Okay. He's like Deborah Jean Palfy, but it was just like entrapping gay politicians and people. Okay. So So he ran that kind of operation in DC. Uh, so in other words, this is a, uh, this goes on and this is, this is a big part of how the system works and how, how, how we have so many corrupt politicians because large portion of them are sexually blackmailed and people in Hollywood too. Right. Right. So this is not, this is just one pedophile party or whatever, whatever you want to call it. One operation. Yeah. yeah, One operation. Cause I had a sex trafficking expert. She's not a conspiracy theorist, but she works with sexually trafficked uh, girls. And she said, I asked her, you know, is there going to be another Jeffrey Epstein? And she said, Oh, absolutely. So do you think there is operations right now running the same stuff in other parts of the world? I mean, for example, Eastern Europe, uh, Romania, uh, I just read a big long report about this the other day. That's like a huge hub for this stuff. So yeah, it goes on all the time. Do you know any names or or any ones in the U.S. that are ha- that are currently happening that have just not been uh, exposed yet? No, I don't. I mean, 
I don't know any of that. <laughs> I mean, sort of like, I mean, any sort of hints of things of people that might be involved or. I mean, again, uh, nobody who knows those kinds of things is going to just say people's names. I mean, all I know is what's in the public domain in terms of books yeah. that have been published on that material. Um, and then there's a guy who wrote an essay about Eastern European gangs and human trafficking. So uh, you could look the, up so something like okay. uh, look up Eastern European, Eastern Europe, comma, human trafficking. You'll, you'll get articles on that the public, like law enforcement articles. OK, because there was another example that I heard you talk about that I had to I had to Google this. I'd never heard about. I feel like this should have been a big story. The Picton pig farm. Explain that one to my audience. That is that was a crazy thing that I heard you talk about. All right. So there's a guy who puts up serial killer uh, stuff uh, uh, of archive footage of interviews with them. And the theory there is that uh, a lot of the serial killers may be connected to organized crime. Uh, they may be, in fact, contract killers or hitmen. Uh, and some of those instances may be connected to, you know, human trafficking as well, because that's part of organ organized crime. So uh, there was some people who had done some podcasts theorizing that I don't remember this person's name, but they theorized that the Picton pig farm could have been one of those kinds of operations because they had uh, it's a famous serial killer incident. And they sort of burned the lower level guy. But uh, the rest of the people involved in this big compound like Hell's Angels and the uh, others that sort of went up to high level people in the, the Canadian government. So the theory is that it might have been some kind of entrapment operation or SNUFF film operation or something like that uh, because of the high level people who didn't get in trouble, but they just burned this kind of scrubby, skanky, low level dude that was running it on the ground. So, yeah, because these the people and the people that go to these parties and such. So maybe like even Epstein was was more just like a pawn. Yeah, I think he was the you know point man to run that operation, and he seemed to have had connects to, you know, various intelligence agencies to you know have the blackmail data basically i mean that's a i don't think he was like some super high level person mm -hmm. that's interesting he was, just, he was put there to run the operation so the, like the people middle management that, kind of person yeah you, you talk about a lot of this uh, the great reset let's talk about that then so you know the global government the global economy all this stuff so yeah because this one was confusing why are all these rich people putting money into leftist organizations explain that to, to my audience well i think that they've always seen uh liberalism as a tool for social change uh it's a really powerful and effective tool for that and so one thing that especially socialism and, and marxist movements do is that they level the existing order and they consolidate wealth because marx always said you know one of the first things you have to do is create a centralized uh federal reserve type of bank and that allows all the the money to be you know, printed by this central entity. But of course, the real owners of the, the central banks are not the public, but they're private. So it's a private Federal Reserve based system, which is what we have. We've had it since 1913 in the US. And, you know, it is one of the planks of the Communist Manifesto. So um, although I don't think the global conspiracy is a quote Marxist conspiracy, Marxism had a very important role to play in bringing about the world that we are going into. And it was always uh, aided and funded by very wealthy individuals. Um, this is, you know, P Professor Anthony Sutton has a series of books on how uh, elite wealthy individuals funded uh, Hitler, funded the Bolshevik revolutions and socialism. So 
look at Wall Street and the Bullshit Revolution or Wall Street and Hitler by Sutton, and you'll get the same information that we find in Dr. Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope, where he also says that um, the most wealthy people in the U.S. funded the liberal socialist causes for social engineering because they have a, a, an agenda and ideology which they want to bring about. And so liberalism is just a, a, a means for that, really. So the divisiveness, that's on purpose, though, right? That's the way to kind of destroy. Or what did you say? Something about like, we're going to destroy ourselves with all this stuff. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure which specific, what you're talking about where I said we, we destroy ourselves, but what, what do you mean? Like what? Well, yeah, I mean, they certainly zero population growth. So like, so like first we said, um, you know, there was a a push for gay marriage and and such like that. Then it was transgender. Um, you said bestiality is going to be the next, uh, right thing that, yeah, I think all of those are going to be pushed because they're, um, useful again for this goal of creating ZPG as zero population growth, zero carbon output, as they're calling it. That's the goal of all the carbon stuff is to basically just ensure that there's no more humans, uh, because they are committed to post-humanism and post-humanism is, is a transhumanist worldview. So you can see this, for example, in the radical today's radicals are groups like extinction rebellion, right? The radical eco people, um, you know, there's, there's prominent people who think that there should be no humans. And they, they tend to believe that we can be, uh, you know, downloaded into computers. So even though they don't believe that there is consciousness that they claim that they're going to download their consciousness into computers. So it's not a consistent view, but it's a, uh, it's kind of a crazed sort of uh, cult type of view really. Um, but they really do believe that. And so all, all of these events that are occurring in terms of the great reset, it's really to get to that end goal. In fact, Klaus's book actually says that like the first uh, two thirds of the book is about why we need, um, you know, this global, Great reset. And the last third of the book, Fourth Industrial Revolution by Klaus, says that, well, we need to um, remake and re- retool the entire biosphere to make it synthetic because it's broken. And the way to fix it is to alter human DNA, to change uh, everything in society, to radically reduce the population 90 to 95 percent. I mean, this is what they believe. Yeah. So what is the thing with your favorite, as you call him, uh, Gil Bates? the uh, CEO of Microsoft. So he's buying like all this farmland and they keep pushing this like fake meat shit. And uh, Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to try to make people eat bugs. I think is that the next thing it's going to be crickets or something. They're going to cricket proteins. Is that going to be, or what is the eating bugs? Cause the soy, the fake meat shit's already out. Yeah. This is an old technique of uh, oligarchs to control population by controlling their diet. I mean, it's just it's just a really simple uh, form of warfare, basically. And so if you think about it in terms of siege, siege is a form of warfare where, you know, people are locked up in their their uh, redoubt or their their you know helms deep or whatever. And so siege involves all the different techniques that you would do to break their defenses and to destroy uh, them in their in their castle. And so one of those would be, for example, uh, controlling the food supply. So if I can control what food comes into the society or how they eat or what they eat, uh, it's a tremendous form of warfare. Again, this is very well known. It's, it's ancient warfare. It comes up in even some of the global elite writings, Bertrand Russell, uh, Charles Galton, Darwin. I mean, in their books, they have sections on in order to depopulate, we're going to have to take control of the food supply. So I think that's 100% what it is. Yeah. And then also education. I mean, you talked about the neural link and all that stuff. You're saying that, uh, that, or I don't know if it was you or Alex Jones that had said, I, I heard, uh, with the education thing with the neural link, 
you're not going to have access to a lot of the the history and the and the past uh, education. You're only going to have access to the things that's like the the North Korea kind of stuff. Yeah, this is what uh, Jacques Attali says in his book Brief History of the Future. He's one of the globalists. He's a uh, uh, he's the Kissinger of France, basically, and he says that uh, by twenty, I think he says twenty forty, uh, every house will have its own sort of AI version of Alexa, right? So mm-hmm. you'll have a personal house assistant that doesn't just quote assist you around the house. Uh, it, it will also be where you get education from. So you won't go to school or anything like that. You'll have a, you know, this bot that, that educates you. And he says that you, it's not like you're going to have some free internet where you look up whatever you want. It'll be a one way thing where it teaches you and tells you what you need to know. Uh, so it's just straight up dystopia, right? Like all the scientific science fiction dystopias wrapped into one. And I mean, that's what he says. The way he even says uh, that the hive mind that everybody will, will be linked into, he calls it Gollum. Wow. So it's all about control, controlling the population. So we're, we're basically, they want us to be slaves is what the goal could be. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, these people are psychopathic uh, control freaks. Absolutely. 100%. So what, and with the media, what's going on? Cause the media seems so weird just in my lifetime. I've seen a drastic change from just regular used to be just reporting the news. Now we have this, like what my friend calls fad politics. Like, you know, it's just like there's always some sort of cause. Like for a while, it was the Ukraine thing, which, again, I, I'm not necessarily siding with Russia, but it, it seemed like it was like a real big push to like, why was there such a big push for the Ukraine thing? Because there's tons of wars in the Middle East and Africa that nobody's talking about those. Nobody's cared about those. But all of a sudden, something about Ukraine was this big deal and everyone had to change their Facebook profile pictures. And what is there a conspiracy behind that? Uh could you ask that? I'm sorry. Somebody, my uh, important person was, was calling me. I'm trying to turn off the phone. So this no, that's all right. you repeat that question. No, just, just, just with the fad politics, it seems like there's always this push for some sort of cause and it, 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 it changes. Uh, so, but like for a while there, it was Ukraine. And I just, I just, I was suspicious. I didn't pick a side. I didn't do a lot of research as to the conflict. I mean, I knew some of the basic things, uh, but it just seemed odd that there was such a push to pray for Ukraine and all this stuff. It just seemed strange to me. It seemed, I don't know if there was a nefarious motive or not. Maybe I'm just being paranoid, but it just seemed odd that with all these other wars going on in the world and a lot of genocide in Africa and the Middle East and terrible things, people being bombed, that's that's not a big thing. But for some reason, why was Ukraine the big one? Well, because the media is controlled and it puts out what they want people to be concerned about or to have a pseudo activism about. So, yeah, activism is is a complete scam. It's a complete joke. I mean, there's there's plenty of people who are sincere about their activism. Sure. But any anything the system is telling you to be involved in activism about is is just a joke, and it's really just propaganda. Is all it is. Yeah. Well, then, so like Ukraine would be big for a while, and then it was like there'd be a shooting, and then that's the big thing. So let's talk a little. I had a I've had an expert on here about uh, mass shooters and and such. Um, what is it? I can't remember if we talked about this last time or not, but I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on some of the mass shooters. And I mean, I think that you you say that the, a lot of them have ties to uh, CIA or the government. A lot of them have ties to cult, occult or uh, satanic things. Uh, well, uh, no, serial killers. Oh, serial not killers. Necess- sorry, not yeah. necessarily mass shooters. Although you said some something of them, too some of them about the, the manifestos 
they always find these manifestos of the mass shooters and you, you a lot of them are very similar and you Correct. think that's right. on- sometimes they're copy and paste. So like the copy and paste. Um uh, Bravik, Anders Bravik, uh, his was an odd sort of copy and paste thing. Um, you know, this goes back to the Unabomber with the man- the manifesto goes back to him. He he uh, you know, was openly involved in MK Ultra. He was part of the MK Ultra experiments. It's in his uh obituary uh, that he was involved in MK Ultra experiments. So it's very odd that he uh then becomes this, you know, so-called terrorist figure after MK Ultra experimentation and then the o- odd part is that the main locus of his message re- revolves around transhumanism and the AI grid that they're bringing in. So he was warning people about technocracy and what do you know, he's this quote terrorist, right? So the very thing that, that was being planned for a long time, technocracy, right? You need the people who warn about it to be seen as these radical, you know, um, terror figures. And that's exactly the se- seemingly the, the function that he served. Likewise, uh, you know, they sort of mind controlled, staged, created um, maniac killer people, whether serial killers or and I'm, mass shooters are a kind of a serial killer. So I understand the overlap there. But um, I think some of these uh, mass shooter types are just sort of drugged out um, there. Are, a lot of them are on SSRI uh, types of drugs. A lot of them have, you know, handlers and people who work for uh intelligence agencies sort of provoking them riling them up that's a pattern that comes out all the time um especially the uh islamic t-e-r-r-o-r networks uh that's especially an infiltrated and controlled type of thing and the same with right-wing militias and these people too they're all sort of handled in this way and um so there's no definite you can't definitively prove that all of them are you know uh, caused by intelligence agents, but the patterns and the, the handlers seem to consistently be there, which is again, a you know, legitimate question, but in this, in regard to the serial killers, what's a more interesting connection is that a lot of them were part of um, the military. And so it's odd that so many serial killers had military uh, service and uh, seemed to have been stationed in, in suspicious areas, seemed to have been part of LSD research. For example, we know that Berkowitz went into the mil- military and uh, took LSD. We know that um, Gary Heidnick uh, was involved in MKUltra. He's one of the most famous serial killers as well. During his Vietnam service, he, he was involved in MKUltra. We know that the Phoenix program, according to Douglas Valentine, included training uh individuals that they profiled to be psychopathic to engage in cannibalism and human mutilation and sacrifice. That was part of the uh, Viet Cong. That was a part of the warfare against the Viet Cong. And so a lot of these uh, serial killers had Vietnam service. And so the theory is that they could have been involved in um, the Phoenix program. And this is why we have this outbreak of serial killers in the seventies and eighties, because guys coming back from Vietnam who had basically gone nuts. Yeah, I think you said uh, I never heard this before. Jeffrey Dahmer was investigated for murders in Germany while he was stationed there because he was in the Correct. military. That's yeah, crazy. he was stationed 20 minutes from where Heidnick was stationed, too. I think I don't think they were there at the same time because they they were uh, hiding. I think it was a little older, but it's odd that you have two of the most prominent serial killers stationed in German mili- U.S. German bases within a few minutes from each other and they both come back to america to be the craziest serial killers in american history that's really suspicious in my book Uh, so my my uh the theory is that uh, they could have been involved in some form of uh, mind control projects as well 
And um, I don't, I can't, I can't authenticate it, but there's a cable uh, that surfaced that shows that a prominent general squashed the German government investigating Dahmer for those murders in Germany. Wow. Crazy. What about, do you know anything about the Montauk project? I just, I learned about this after I had you on the first time and this thing just really fascinated me. It seems like there's not a lot of information on it that I can. Yeah. I've just seen a few, like you said, I've just seen a few uh, passing references and videos and maybe a chapter here and there in a book, but uh, because I've tried to read most of the sourced material that's out there in MKUltra. So you'll see it in passing, but it seems to have been this sort of project of taking kids and putting them into these sort of programs, which is what Stranger Things, the TV show, is playing right. on. They're, they're sort of playing on the Montauk project. I, I have no doubt that it, it was real, um, but we just we just don't know much about it. But there's other programs that we do know about that are very similar to that, where they would uh, experiment on kids. Dr. John C. Lilly, the famous psychonaut weirdo who had a fetish for dolphins, um, he talks about mind-controlling kids in his books. Um, uh, Dr. Kinsey, I mean, he molested kids for science and everybody knows about that. So it shouldn't seem far-fetched that they would, uh, you know, kidnap kids or use uh, orphans or whatever for these projects either. Yeah. What about, do you know about this one? This is another one I just recently found out about operation high jump and uh, Richard E bird and, and the stuff that's going on in Antarctica. What's going on there? Is there, there's some sort of government base there or, um, I have heard of high jump. I don't know much about it. I did a video just speculating about Antarctica. Um, I know it's a, you know, it's obviously an important geostrategic region in terms of geopolitics. Uh, but I have no idea what, <laughs> I mean, I have no idea what, what the deal with Antarctica is. Uh, there is an odd situation with, uh, Bundy who has a lot of connections to prominent and intelligence connected people. So Ted Bundy, was a roommate for a year or two with a CIA Department of Defense cover individual who was involved, I think, in high jump. Do you think the like so if Bundy and Dahmer and these guys are are being uh, mind controlled, do they know they're being mind controlled, or is it totally out of their like they they think they they don't know how how this happened? Well, there's different types of mind control. There's different possibilities. Um, only a small percentage of the public can be hypnotized or is uh possibly a, a dissociative it can go into dissociative states um so it's hard to know or hard to say because again it's speculation um we do have uh, dr esther books writing uh, a famous essay that is still sourced in the dsm which says that he could create hypnotic couriers where information would be stored in one of the altars now is it possible that he was just making that up? It is possible, but it's also possible that he really could do that. And so, you know, he was writing that at the time of the fifties and this kind of stuff would inspire things like mentoring candidate and, you know, movies like this, which have this theme. And then of course now, you know, since the fifties, Hollywood has had dozens and dozens of movies with the idea of mind controlled assassins and mind controlled couriers and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, it's in the literature, but as to how, advanced or how far they can go with it is who knows yeah well because like the mk ultra i mean that that came out that the unabomber was involved in that like that that was public information now mk ultra is not 
going on right now, but you think it's got to be, there's got to be something that evolved into something else or there's a different project for that, right? Right. So even back in the seventies, one of the first books on it was a 1978 book by uh, John Marks called the search of the Manchurian candidate. And the last chapter in John Marks's book is about um, how MKUltra evolved into MK search and MK Delta, which means that it went under bio warfare and uh, human genetics. So all of DARPA's stuff to do with, um, microchips that's that comes out of mk ultra because they were doing they were testing electrodes in the in the brain and that turned into microchips in the brain Hmm. so john c Lilly was a pioneer of that yeah what else is going to be coming like what other predictions do you have or or things that people don't know about that they should know about with the great reset or any of this stuff um uh yeah i don't know about predictions i mean they you know they definitely say that they um I think that what they seem to want to do is to blow up the existing system and economy to say, haha, look, it doesn't work. So here's our solution. Here's our universal base, basic income. Here's our, you know, Fed coin crypto that you all need to be on. I, I think that they'll probably try to go with something like that. Um, and, you know, they have goals of population reduction by 2040 and 2050. So, you know, how, how they would go about that, I don't know. I mean, they, try, they might try to do a giant war. Uh, it might be a bio event. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Well, and the last time I had you on here, you we talked about aliens. You don't believe in aliens. You told me to watch this movie Mirage Men, which I did. It was really fascinating. Um, but now that this video comes out uh, that the Navy puts out of a, a UFO and they say, we don't know what this is. I mean, but I don't know if I trust the government. But then so if it's not you, if it's not aliens, if it's or if it's what is it? I mean, is it this is some sort of manipulation technique that the government is using to control us? Well, I mean, I don't know who knows what those blurry old camera footage that could be anything. I mean, that could be completely made up. I mean, uh, certainly there are unidentified flying objects, but it's a leap to say to go from that to extra biological entities. So I just don't, I think that there's plenty of evidence that um, the alien mythology is a psyop itself. And again, the best book for that is invoking the beyond by the Collins brothers. They spend about 300 pages in their book going through the CIA documents about creating uh, majestic 12 and, and that being a psyop and, and sort of, promoting this idea of space brothers and all that. So there's, there's a lot of different usages for the space brother mythology and the alien mythology of panspermia and so forth. So, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, anytime you see naval intelligence or quote the Navy coming out, telling you about um, aliens and UFOs, you can bet that that's 100% a psyop. Yeah. Well, I mean, they don't say, I mean, cause yeah, it's just a UFO. We don't know what it is. It is fascinating to me because they say that it, it couldn't be a technology that they're familiar with. So, I mean, it's possible that it's something from China. Then, yeah, but I mean, the thing? government lies. I mean, yeah, it could be something from a foreign government, but I mean, it's just, there's, to me, it's nothing. I mean, they, they come out with these all the time. I mean, they've been saying that there's flying saucers for, you know, 50 years, 60 years. And I mean, all, all it just, it just doesn't add up to me, but what does make sense is that it would be a very useful, um, tool for social engineering yeah well that's that's because that's what they were uh, in that mirage men movie that's what they did is they made the guy think that there were that he was that there was aliens and they made him think he was crazy and they they drew him to they or they forced him to the hospital because they really did make him crazy 
just so that they could hide what they were doing, which is like, and we still don't know what, what were they doing over there? There's still a lot of mysteries with area 51. Yeah. But I mean, even sort of mainline books have pointed out that the alien smoke screen is a cover for either black operations, uh, you know, drug running it could be any of those things that, it, that that's probably what it really is at those bases. Okay. Um, last thing that I got that uh, I got to ask you about. I don't know if you know anything about this conspiracy theory, the Denver airport. What, what the hell's going on with that? Are you familiar with this? Yeah, this is, you know, I mean, it's kind of one of the classic cons internet conspiracy theories. It's been around for a long time and there, there really is an underground base underneath the Denver airport. Um, it's pretty well known. It's pretty easy to verify that. I think there's, you know, the government has, um, many underground bases all over the United States. So that's not a conspiracy theory. That's, it's a real thing. And usually it's explained as, um, continuity of government. So in other words, if there's an attack or if the government, the U S went down or something like that, there would be facilities for the preservation or the continuity of order in the United States, you know, in the case of some big event. So that's the public reasons for those things. I mean, you can find all kinds of public news articles and documentaries on the underground bases. So um, the Denver airport is one of those, but I think the reason that people pick that one is that the Denver airport was designed with a lot of really bizarre, dark artwork. Yeah. This seems to, this seems to suggest these sort of apocalyptic themes and depopulation. So I think that's, that's why people find that one particularly fascinating. Yeah, that is the, that's, so that's called the, I think they call them the dumbs, right? Deep underground military bases. That's a real, yeah, thing. And I mean, this has even been, been in mainline literature for a long time. Uh, James Bamford, who wrote the first book on the NSA famously back in the early eighties, uh, you know, he talks about underground cities and underground bases in the first few chapters. And that's, that's a famous, I think a Pulitzer winning book from the, from the eighties. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a real thing. Um, what all those bases and underground cities and underground facilities are up to is anybody's guess. I don't have any knowledge of that scary shit well this has it been is a lot wild, of fun bro. uh you'll have to come back again if we if we still have a civilization or maybe we'll be in the same <laughs> gulag or something who knows so yeah as my friends are like real they're real like uh doomsday preppers you know they think they're always oh, really? thinking the worst so who knows but i mean it's it's interesting to think about it but i try not to get too wrapped up and uh, i think last time the advice that you gave uh, gave me and my uh viewers was just to try to stay off the internet too much and uh try to be more self-sufficient i think that yeah. is good advice uh regardless yeah, i agree with that i mean and the, the more uh off the grid you can be the better i don't think you have to be totally you know no. a hermit you don't have to run to the no, hills no, no, no. yet but <laughs> yeah yeah not yet <laughs> yeah right all right well thanks so much jay everyone should get the book it's called uh meta narratives here it is uh, essays on philosophy and symbolism. Good yeah, stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I need Thank to read you, it. And I got a lot more work to do because you mentioned a lot of things that I want to do a deep dive on. So I'll have to have you back. All right. Well, thanks, Chuck. Appreciate it. Good chat. All right. See you later, Jay. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks again to Jay Dyer. He doesn't do charities. So if you're a regular listener to the show, you can support any of the other ones that I've promoted. Or if you want to support Jay, uh, make sure to buy one of his books or pay for his content on Redfin. He was demonetized from YouTube, which is really stupid in my opinion. Uh, but you can find more links to his content on his website, which is in the show notes. My website is in there as well. Check out my other interview with Jay or some of the other episodes I've done. Uh, the playlist should come up on YouTube that has all the uh, authors and things. And... Um, and make sure to subscribe again to, and hit that bell so that you get the notifications whenever I post something. Thanks for watching. Have a great day and shoot for the moon. Shoot for the moon.